I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to Romans chapter 12. And I'll admit at the very beginning, uh, Romans 12 is not a typical passage uh, for an Easter Sunday service. But as a church family, we've been going through every letter of the New Testament this year. And so we started with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John looking at the beginning and the end of every letter. And so that gave us an opportunity at the beginning of the year to be reminded of the resurrection story uh, from each of the gospel Writers, And so now we're actually to the letter of Romans. Uh, and I hope that you'll find it uh, helpful to see here, not necessarily a description of how Jesus rose again, but rather what difference it could make in our lives and in our community because Jesus rose from again. Uh, if, you, if you're here this morning and uh, just the whole idea that God ever would have come in the flesh and died and then rose again. Sounds to you just sort of uh, like a fairy tale. And you're, you're struggling, even though you're here, wondering how people could actually believe that. I mean, when, even if you're familiar with the story, there, there need to be moments where you pause for a moment and say, wait a minute, Jesus was born as a peasant with almost no rights in, in the home that he was born into. When he died, he died as a criminal, uh, as an outlaw, in an incredibly humiliating way. So do I really believe that someone who was born an outcast and died an outlaw was somehow the living representation of God in the flesh, who now lives again forevermore? Is that really what I believe? <laughs> that someone who was born an outcast and died an outlaw was God in the flesh and is now God alive again forevermore for us to put our trust in. If I say it like that, maybe you'll join me in a moment of skepticism and say, is that really what I believe? And what we're about to read in Romans chapter 12 is to read the testimony of somebody who himself thought that was crazy. Who thought that was blasphemous? Blasphemous and ludicrous. Like, no, I don't believe that. I don't believe that somebody would have been born in those circumstances and died in those circumstances and then somehow come to a conviction that that was actually God in the flesh. Like, how could you believe that? And the person who wrote Romans chapter 12 was very opposed to it and very committed to making sure nobody else would come to believe something so silly or Irrational, But by the time we come to Romans, he does believe in it himself. And what he now describes for us is the ways in which his mind and his heart have changed of how he thinks about what his responsibility is to the world because he now believes that the story is true. And so this is Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, 
I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. If it's helpful for you, you can keep your Bible open as we walk through this passage and and reference it, or you can close it and simply uh, look up. Here, hopefully you've seen, is not a recounting of what happened on that Easter morning uh, 2,000 years ago, but rather for the Apostle Paul, he's taken now uh, the first 11 chapters of this letter to go over uh, the significance of all that transpired and how it is that we can believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, and now he's turning his attention to point to the application of that in our lives. And so if we believe these things, here are the implications for how we should now live together. And one of the things that comes through uh, in this uh, that I want to highlight to you first is the relationship of the resurrection and human dignity. If we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, it transforms the way we think about human beings. He says specifically in this passage that we are all called as those who believe in him to willingly choose to associate with the lowly. And we still might hear that in our 21st century context and not quite realize what the Apostle Paul is saying. But he is writing uh, to people gathered in the capital of the empire, in Rome itself. And in ancient Roman culture, you're either a citizen of Rome 
or you're not. And if you're a citizen of Rome, you have rights. And if you're not, you don't. And so your life is valuable in as much as you belong to the political class. And if you don't, there's just not much else you can do. And so for the Apostle Paul to say that this community of faith that believes in the resurrection should now willingly choose to associate themselves with those who are of a lower class or lower status is a transformative idea in the first century. Why should we be willing to associate with the outcasts, with those who are on the margins, with those who have no otherwise freedoms or connections? Most of us like to find friends who then help lead to connections that sort of lift our standing in society by our association with them. So to be told that we should be willing to associate with those who will not elevate our status, but will actually potentially bring mockery to us or other things because we're willing to care about those who might not have anything, is a transformative idea. And uh, we don't know the, the exact percentage, but a massive percentage of the citizens of this city in Rome were actually slaves. Slavery was common in the ancient world. And so here's a, a description. Um, slavery was an accepted fact of Greco-Roman society. Slaves were visible in every aspect of life, and most people probably couldn't imagine a world without them. And while there were varying opinions as to how slaves should be treated, there's little evidence suggesting abolition was ever seriously considered. In spite of their highly visible presence and activity in society, slaves were not part of it. The division between slave and free meant that although a significant part of the population worked to create the benefits of and prosperity for society, they were unable to enjoy them. A slave's life was lived on the margin, and his or her primary function was to assist and to benefit the owner. And it's in this environment that all of the New Testament was written. But here, this charge by the Apostle Paul to say that we as Christians should be willing to associate with the lowly comes from the fact that we believe that the Jesus who rose again was born into a family on the margins, had no specific political rights. And if God, who made the world could enter into that environment. Who are you or I or anyone to discount anybody else's life? This is a radical idea. The value of human life does not come from society's willingness to say, yes, you matter, or yes, you're a citizen. Governments don't grant dignity. Human life is inherently valuable. We can recognize it or we can desecrate it, but we don't create it. If all of us have been made by God, then every single one of us has dignity. Whatever our mental capacity, whether our physical capacity, whatever social environment we were born in, and it is from the conviction of the resurrection of the Son of God that this sense of universal human dignity begins to develop. 
in human history that eventually grows and grows so that all of us sitting here today, if I were just to ask you, do you believe everybody sitting next to you, even though you might not know their story or where they came from, uh, has inherent worth? And I think most of you would say, yeah, I do. Really? Do you think the life of a total stranger, three spaces down from you, that they are infinitely valuable, irreplaceable, to be cherished and not desecrated? I do. Why do you believe that? Why, when so much of the world organizes itself around saying that, no, your, your life is more significant if you're faster, if you're stronger, if you're smarter, if you're better, where does the conviction come from that every human life is sacred and that it's supposed to be cherished? For the Apostle Paul, he has summarized the good news of the resurrection and the truth that our Savior, who's been victorious over the grave, gives us now this ability to love one another, to seek to live peaceably with everyone, and when possible, to specifically associate with those who are lowly, with those who have less than us. Because we need them. We need to be reminded of how much their lives matter. And so we need to cherish them and honor them. And so when people are suffering or hurting, we don't live in an environment where we say, well, I'm sorry, but history just goes that, you know, it's the strong who survive and it's the weak who get passed by. We revolt against that idea in our own hearts. And so later in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul would say, all of you who are strong have an obligation to bear with those who are weak. All of you who are strong actually have an obligation to come alongside those are weak, who are weak and help them in their journey. I submit to you that idea comes from and is grounded in the truth that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Not only does it affirm human dignity, but he also casts in this chapter an amazing picture of the possibility of human society. So there's individual dignity, and then what flows out of that is this possibility that we have of community with one another. He describes it first in terms of within the body of believers itself. He says, we've all been given different gifts, and here again, where this could become a source of division and separation, he's saying, no, 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 God's given all of us different gifts, and we have different backgrounds, and we do different things, but if we have a posture that is willing to share that with one another, we can, as a community, be stronger than we would individually. And so rather than being jealous that one person has something that we don't have or resentful that somebody has something we don't have, we can look at all of that diversity and say, you know, God has given me this, and it's maybe different than what he's given you, but I think what he's given me is for you, and what he's given you is for me, and together we can share with one another and experience an amazing sense of community. And so to serve one another. And you don't even have to believe the Bible is true. Just to take uh, verses sort of 9 through 13 and say, would you love to live in a community where this was taken seriously? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Wow, yes. I'd love to be 
in an environment than that, like that, to experience love and affection uh, in that way. We all want that. None of us enjoy being sort of passed over and, and, and ignored. Friday night, we had a good Friday service here outside, and I had to go to Indianapolis on Thursday, and so, uh, and I only made it in time basically uh, to be here for an elder meeting and then the service. So I thought I'd have time to go home before the Good Friday service, but I didn't. So I was now seeing my family as they came to the Good Friday service, and I haven't seen them in uh, 24 hours, and so I'm excited to see them. And, you know, one of them came up and immediately said hi to me, and then our youngest, David, just starts running down the sidewalk towards me, and I'm like, oh, this feels so good. And so I bend down like this, and I put my arms up, and he's just running, running, running. And then he ran right past me. (laughs) And he had no intention of hugging me at all. And it is not a good feeling when you are ready to embrace someone and then see them go right past you. And then uh, more families kept coming, and then another little boy came running up towards me, and I'm like, I'm just going to stick out my hand this time. And I got a high five. And then I told his dad, I'm like, your kid likes me more than my kid likes me. My kid just ran right past me. But none of us want to experience uh, rejection. And so Paul's giving this vision that because of who Jesus is and was and what he said and in his rising again, if he could go through the humiliating experience of a criminal's death on a cross outside the city, And he was willing to do that so that each and every one of us could feel like we're back at home with our Heavenly Father. Then we should now live in such a way that whoever feels like they're outcast or whoever feels like they're separated and they have no hope, that they could actually experience what it's like to be part of a loving environment where they are cared for. Where if they have needs, they know that somebody will look after them. And so that's what he describes within the community of those who believe in the resurrection. But then he also says, all of us who believe in the resurrection and love each other this way, we all have an obligation to love those who don't believe like we do. We have a responsibility to love our enemies, to live peaceably with all people. It's not our job to treat everybody else as terribly as we can because they don't think what we think or believe what we believe. What we believe is that we are supposed to love them and care for them and that we can find ways to live at peace with those who are different than us. And that that's part of our conviction. There again, where did that come from in human history? Usually the goal is simply of one group to dominate another or to punish another. And so when he says that we're supposed to bless those who persecute us, if we find our enemies hungry, we're supposed to feed them. Um, Paul knows that there's going to be times where conflict ensues and there are hostilities. But it is a totally different thing. If you just think of our own uh, nation's history of having a civil war, uh, it's a very different environment when you're fighting to get away from somebody versus fighting to restore a union. Because when you're fighting to say, I just want to be done with you. Uh, I want to be rid of you. Then you will fight in such a way that does not put self-constraint and limitations on the destruction being caused. When you engage in hostilities with the desire to reestablish fellowship, you will seek as much as possible to do the least amount of damage necessary to bring us back into fellowship. And those trend in two very different directions. There might be times where 
we're not getting along and we disagree and we're fighting for something, but you can feel very differently when somebody is simply fighting to get rid of you versus somebody fighting for you. Somebody fighting and longing for the opportunity for us again to live at peace with one another. And so Paul, in his convictions on the resurrection that he used to discount, but now he firmly believes, casts this vision of the dignity of every person and also the possibility for us to live together, those of us who believe in this, that we can truly repay no one evil for evil. We can seek to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone, and we can live peaceably with all. In, all, in each of those descriptions, he is recognizing that the majority of people receiving this letter are living in an environment where people don't share their convictions about Jesus, about his life or his death or his resurrection. And Paul doesn't invite them to all get angry about that and to simply engage in constant conflict with other people because of it. He says, love them. Live honorably in such a way that there's a beauty to the way of your life that they are attracted to and want themselves to say, why do you live like that? How do you find the strength to love people like that? How, it seems like there's a lot of disagreement here, but you all haven't just canceled each other and cut each other out of your lives. Like, how do you do that? And as Christians, that becomes our opportunity to say, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I literally believe that God himself came into this world, born an outcast, and died an outlaw so that you and me could be right with him forever. And it changes how I think about everybody and everything I encounter. Lastly, Paul makes the argument that the resurrection can also then transform how we think about sacrificial generosity. This is where Romans 12 begins. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so... He begins, therefore, in light of God's mercies that we celebrate in the life and death and resurrection of our Savior, we now have a reason to not just occasionally give things in empathy and compassion, but to actually make the whole of our lives a posture of sacrificial generosity for the, the good of others. He's not inviting anybody to, to self-harm in this. But he is inviting every one of us to say that if we believe that death is not the end because our Savior has been victorious over death, it now transforms. Rather than simply thinking about life as what can we get out of this brief life that we have, and therefore as we continue to sense that our life is getting shorter and shorter, now we have this sort of diminishing opportunities to indulge in selfishness because we don't know how many more times we're going to be able to do the things we want to do. He's saying, wait a minute. 
death is going to be like the briefest thing that happens to you or me. And there are experiences that you will have in this life, but also experiences that are promised for you in the life to come. And you don't have to live in constant indulgence and selfishness to try to get the most out of this experience right now but actually can live freely and joyfully. It's interesting when he says that those who are gifted with doing acts of mercy, he says to do acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Acts of mercy are acts of compassion, like helping out other people. And how does he want us to do it? Cheerfully. Not, oh, I have to help this person again, but who am I that I have enough that I can help somebody? Who am I that I have this opportunity to make somebody else's load just a little bit lighter? And we can do that with our time. We can do that uh, with our relationships. It's not just something that only applies to money. He's saying that this can be an entire way of life for us. Instead of looking only in the time frame of our birth and our death, we can think about our life and the eternal life that he's promised us. And so in that regard, we have no reason not to have a posture towards others of generosity. And so not only did he then say to seek, uh, to associate with the lowly, but at the end of verse 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, in the ancient world, hospitality was mostly thought of as uh, what you did for strangers, that it still has that connotation today. If you think about the hospitality industry, uh, where will those who don't live here go to eat? Where will they sleep if they come in town? At restaurants and hotels, and people will care for them and treat them though they're strangers. They'll provide safety and provision for them even though they don't know them. And that's what we're called to do as those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that we can contribute to the needs that we are aware of and seek to show hospitality for those who we do not yet know. And the whole of our lives can be this generous expression that we trust that our God who did everything necessary to redeem us and to save us will also ensure that there is no sacrifice that we could ever make that he won't give us a hundredfold for He's already given us the greatest gift in his son. And so if he's already given us his son, that's what we read last week in Romans chapter 8, how will he then also not continue to give us whatever it is that we need? And so as Christians, we believe none of us can be more sacrificial or more generous than God himself. And so it frees us up to have a cheerfulness in the opportunities that we have to love other people. And there you might say, I, I mean, I wish I had more to give. I don't have a lot to give. I, I do think it'd be fun to be generous. I'm just not sure how much I can. But there again, if that's the cry of your heart, it's very revealing. Because it has not been the story of human history that people have been encouraged to be generous and encouraged to care about other people who have needs that they don't know of. If this is the one life we have, and this is simply about the strong surviving, then everything should be about protecting what we can and enjoying what we can enjoy. 
So even if your heart is just inclined to say, yes, I'd love to be more like that. And you believe every person matters. And you believe that there is a way to pursue love that overcomes evil. I just want to submit to you, you're more Christian than you think. Because these ideas have grown out of the truth that our creator came into this world to show us these things. That we would never take them for granted and to confirm in us how great his love is for each and every person to the point of the sacrifice of himself for you and for me. And so we all celebrate and sing of the goodness that he has been victorious because that's what helps us know this really is true. And if it really is true, this is how we're called to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to listen in on someone who himself was skeptical of your message and to see how his own life was transformed um, from his desire to simply get what he wanted to punish those who were not like him to living a life of an overflowing joy and privilege at caring for other people, making sacrifices to help and come alongside those who were in need. Father, though we're 2,000 years away from uh, those first uh, moments around Easter, we do look around our world and we realize that we still need advocates for human life. We still need models and examples of how to live well with one another, even across our differences. And we still need men and women who don't think about only themselves and only their time frame, but live in light of eternity and joyfully do whatever we're able to do to care for those around us. We pray that you would help us to do this, not in our own strength or in our own wisdom, but in a, a response of gratitude for the goodness and the grace that you've given each of us through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we